Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, plowing on, continuing, and I think I know what you're anxious about this morning. I think I know what you're worried about and what scenarios are running through your mind, the big question that you are asking yourself today. I think I know that everyone really wants to know, is it okay to eat meat or other food sacrificed to idols? I'm right, aren't I? That's what you've come this morning, just anxious, wanting to know, what should I do as a Christian in terms of partaking and joining in the feasts that go on in the various temples that we um, have around? Like, that is where we are this morning, okay? Uh, We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter, where he deals with various issues in that church. And we've said all along, haven't we, that the various issues that are dealt with what he is attempting to teach them and we can learn at the same time is not necessarily the answer in those specific situations and occasions, but how does our view of the world change? How does our view of the world and all the situations we find ourselves in change because of the gospel? How does that, if you like, um, act like a, a pair of lenses which help us to see things as they truly are? And so it might seem, of all the things that are discussed in 1 Corinthians, chapters chapters 8, 9, and 10, which deal specifically with this issue, are the furthest from our kind of day-to-day lives. My guess is that none of us have actually sat down and considered that, should I eat food sacrificed to idols? Like, it's probably not given us that much Um, occasion to think about it. We'll see, I hope, pretty quickly that actually the question that's being answered could be replaced with all manner of different questions because the answer or or the lenses that Paul is asking us to put on to see the world as it truly is through the the lenses of the gospel um, are more to do not with the specific question that's being asked, but how we view ourselves, how we view others, and how we act out the gospel. Now, we have to be clear that it may not feel like an issue for us, but for the church in Corinth that Paul is writing to, the, the letter, the correspondence that we're eavesdropping in on, it really was an issue. Maybe this is going to be hard for us to get our hands around, but it was something that the Christians in that place at that time were confronted with on a daily basis. They were confronted with on a weekly basis. It was one of the things that they actually wrote to Paul asking for him to weigh in on. They were desperate to know the answer to this question. Is it okay? Who's right or wrong? We've got different groups in the church. Some say yes, it's fine. Some say no, it's the worst thing we could do. What is the right answer? They want Paul to give as much clarity as he can on the issue. And in doing so, as we've said already, the whole letter is an exercise in helping people to see their whole lives through the lenses of the gospel. Paul answers the question, 
pretty easily the direct question of eating uh, food sacrificed to idols. But in, in expanding or in coming to the conclusion that he comes to, he needs us and he requires us to think more holistically, not just about that one thing, but how we, as I said, how we view ourselves, how we view each other, how we make decisions in our lives. So, to meet, verse 1 of chapter 8, you've got your Bibles open. This is what Paul says, Now, concerning food offered to idols. We've gone through in 1 Corinthians divisions in the church, groups. We've kind of dealt with that, kind of. There's divisions forming around this issue. We've, we've left sexual ethics and relationships behind, sort of. Um, again, this thinking of how we relate to each other is going to carry on and uh, have an influence on the rest of it. But now, verse 1, chapter 8, we're treading into the murky waters of diets and deities. This question for them, it certainly was an important question. Um, deeply embedded into the culture of Corinth was the daily practice, the weekly practice, the social, the communal practice of going up to the various temples, the various imagined deities, in order to seek a better existence for you and your family. That's just what the day-to-day -day was like, at least for the non-Jewish uh, citizens in Corinth, that's what it was. It was part of their lifestyle to go and to pay service to the various gods that were worshipped, small g. Um, and it was more than just a cultural thing. It was a, a daily routine thing. This is what for all of the converts to Christianity, they had grown up being used to. Their rhythms, their natural shapes to their lives was on various days making various journeys to various places to worship in a certain way. It was deeply embedded even into their relationships. They knew people because of their common practices going up to the temples. And so the natural question that does follow for them is, can we continue to participate in that? And if not, where do we draw the line? Like, how close can we, how close should we get to all that's going on over there? And how much should we, ironically, self-isolate from everything that's happening? And they've got arguments for and against it either way. There's, there's people who say on the one hand this, there's people who say on the one hand that. Um, they're mentioned, they're dealt with. Uh, idols aren't really real, okay? So they're made up, they're imagined. That's what one group of people say, and then another group of people will come in and they say, well, yes, they may be imagined, but they represent real spiritual darkness. They are used by actual demons to lead people deeper into a life-rejecting God. All of these things, chapters 8 and chapters 10, Paul uh, highlights them, he pulls them out. But here is the amazing thing. In all of that kind of confusion that existed, what is right to do? What can I do? Um... Is it this or is it that? Which way do I go? Paul answers that question exceedingly quickly and easily. If you flick over to chapter 8, verse 8, this is what Paul says. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we are no better off if we do eat. If you want like a hard line answer to the issue... Paul says, the matter, because food is food. 
You're not going to get closer to God by doing one thing than you are by doing another. You're not going to get further away from God by doing one thing compared to the other. Food is food. Do whatever. And yet, that is by no means the final answer on it. That is really not what they need to come away learning and what we need to come away learning. You get chapters 8, chapters 9, chapters 10, more than that singular verse, explaining something that is far more foundational and undergirds whatever practice you end up, Corinthian, um, following, landing up on. This is what he says. Back to verse 1 then, okay? Now, concerning food offered to idols, okay? Tell us about this, Paul. Then he quotes them. We know that all of us possess knowledge, and this knowledge puffs up but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. I wonder how satisfying an answer, if that's where he finished, we'd find that to be, how the Corinthians would find it to be. Now, concerning food, sacrifice to idols, and then he doesn't speak about idols or food or anything really. He starts speaking about knowledge and love and puffing up and building up. It's not immediately obvious what the link is, how how Paul is addressing their issue. Is he getting distracted? Has he drifted off? Has he started talking about something else entirely? Well, no. What he's doing is taking a step back and and trying to get them, trying to help them to, to survey the problem from as far away as they can to get the whole picture in mind to get the bigger picture, to teach them something that is universally important that applies in this specific case. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Uh, I read this week someone kind of paraphrasing that, that knowledge makes us look big. If you've got knowledge, you can use that to seem and look and feel impressive. Knowledge makes us look big, but love makes us grow. So this is about more than appearances. This is more than, um, uh, you know, as, as we discussed in Corinth, it was really important to be able to get one over on someone else, uh, to give yourself a reason and a reputation for be, being considered more highly than others. Pride is a, a very unchristian thing. And Paul is saying, do you know what? Knowledge on its own will do nothing more than fill you with pride. It'll make you look big. It'll make you feel important. But that's a horrible thing. Instead, he says, but love makes us truly grow. Informed Christians screaming, but I'm in the right. I know the truth. That can get really loud really quickly. And he's going to go on and he's going to say, isn't it, that without love, No matter how right we are, we are just clanging cymbals. If knowledge is so key for you, he says, how about this? If knowledge is that one thing that you want to have above and beyond all things, then the true path to that knowledge is love. And verse 3, it's surprising that that love doesn't even really lead to our own knowledge, but he says a greater knowledge, which is to be known by God. Do you remember back in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, and how Paul was helping them to see all the things that you seek elsewhere, you find it in their fullest, surprisingly, in different ways in Christ. Well, here we have it again. 
knowledge, being in the right, good, good to a point, but love will get you something even better, something even more important. That is to be known by God. So he takes that idea, okay, that kind of framework that there is truth, but that on its own is a potentially dangerous and ugly thing for a Christian. He says love is far better and should be the thing that dominates our knowledge. And then he takes that and he maps it on to the specific question of the food sacrificed to idols. Verses 4 to 6, he shares what the knowledge potentially is. Yeah, we, we know. We know the truth. As to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. Although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom um, are all things and through whom we exist. There's the knowledge. He says, yeah, you are right, you people who have written to me saying, come on, we can eat whatever we want. Apollos is made up. That statue that hundreds, if not thousands of people are making their way up the steps of the temple to worship on a Wednesday afternoon in Corinth, um, that statue isn't able to do anything. You, you, you can go so many places in the scriptures to find how um, dismissive God is of statues, idols, objects made of wood and stone, how they are mute, how they are useless, how they are no things at all. He says, we can know that, and that is the truth, even though we acknowledge that there are spiritual forces, that there are spiritual beings who have rebelled against God, and they do, and they use whatever they can to exert an influence on people to lead them into darkness. He says, look, it is definitely true. Just like the Shemer of old, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There is one God. There is one Lord. There is one creator and sustainer of all. There is knowledge. There is a world as it truly is. The Corinthians have got it wrong. There isn't a God of the harvest. There isn't a God of love and beauty. There isn't a God of healing. There isn't a God of vegetation. They were all gods that they specifically worshipped in Corinth. No, the world as it truly is, is a world that is ruled over, that is reigned over by one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is over and in everything. There is your knowledge, he says. Verse 7, however or in some of your translations, but. You cannot move for big buts in this passage because he says not everyone shares in that knowledge. And he's not here in chapter 8 speaking about non-Christians and the Corinthians in general. He's speaking specifically here in chapter 8, we'll see in a second, of brothers and sisters in the church. He says you've got absolute clarity on all of that and you are right but not everyone has had the time to untangle to, to untangle themselves from their old ways of life. Not every implication and thread of the scriptural truth of redemption story has become obvious to everyone in the church yet. There are some newer to the faith who haven't had that opportunity in the same way that people who have been part of it 
for years. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge. Some, through former association with idols, eat food as though really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. You know the truth, some segment in Corinth. And for you, it isn't an issue to eat something which may or may not have been in close proximity to these idols. But for others, they haven't had the time. They can't get away with it. Imagine this is the scenario, basically. We can imagine it in our own context, in our own circumstances, that someone has come to faith in Jesus, whatever that might look like or be described in their own uh, situation. Let's just say how we would normally present it in our uh, ways. Someone has recognized their guilt before God, their sinfulness, their need for forgiveness, and how Jesus came as a, um, as a substitute for them, died on the cross, rose to life again, so that in Jesus they can now have new life, okay? If someone agreed with that, we'd all say that they were Christians, right? Pr- pretty much. It is possible to agree with all that and still not fully understand, fully comprehend everything that the Bible has to teach you about the world that we live in. It's possible to comprehend that, that our only hope in salvation is Jesus, but not quite know what God would have us do in each and every situation. Paul describes people's consciences as being weak. I think we could equally well describe it as being consciences being young. They're there is then an opportunity for everyone who comes to faith and for those who have been Christians for a long time to, to, to learn their Christian conscience, if that makes sense. To start to figure out, well, what is right and what is wrong? What in each and every situation would God have me or you to do? Paul is saying that there are these people who are fresh out of this situation I think probably he's speaking more to Jewish people who were never really in that situation in the first place when he's warning against it. And he's saying, they've come to trust in Jesus, but perhaps at the moment they're not entirely sure what it means to go and worship these idols. They might think that these idols still actually have power over them. They might think that, yes, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father is through him. But maybe in their relationships, they need still help from this little deity. Or that to have, like, fruitful harvests, they need to go over to that little deity. And Paul is saying, when they're young, when their conscience is weak, we as older Christians, more mature Christians, have an opportunity to influence their forming conscience. And how we act will have an influence. How we act will have an influence. If they see you going off and exercising your Christian liberties, your Christian rights, your Christian freedoms to eat whatever you want, in the young conscience, when the mind is still being made up, what is right, what is wrong, there's a chance that it could be defiled. That those actions could be misinterpreted, misunderstood, misapplied to those individuals. And they might go away thinking and learning and growing up in the faith, thinking that it's Jesus and all these little deities. Do you see what he's getting at? He's saying, just because you know the truth, it doesn't mean that you can 
blindly go around acting any way you want. No. The Christian way is to think of, is to consider everybody else, to consider your brothers and sisters. Bottom line, you aren't better off if you do, or you're not really better off if you don't. But verse 9, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block on the weak. That's what he cares about. Not whether they go off and eat the meat and the veg or whatever was sacrificed or not. He cares about them caring about each other. Does that make sense? Here's the lesson. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Be careful that this freedom that you have found in Jesus doesn't itself become a trap ensnaring those around you, a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak, if it is young, if it is still forming to eat food offered to idols? What good is it for you to know the truth Knowledge that leads, uh, knowledge of the truth, and that knowledge then leads somebody away from Christ. It's the anti building up that's being described there, that what love is being described as building up in verse 1. Be careful that you do not use your freedoms and the rights that you've now been set free for to lead others into captivity. And I think what amazes us as moderns is that that can happen at all. I think probably we, we are unaware how much our actions and our influence can shape people who watch us and see us. How our knowledge and our, our rights do not just serve ourselves, but affect those around us. It's something to be aware of. Even if you're acting in a right way, to ask the question, how is this being perceived in other situations? What is the, how, how is this being misunderstood, potentially? There's a weight, there's a burden on us as Christians to think these things through. Final verse of the chapter, Paul says this. Um, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. He says, forget whether it's been offered to idols or not. He's not even speaking in those terms now. He's saying just on the most basic level, something that I'm allowed to have, I am willing to give up forever if it means helping a precious brother or sister in the faith. And notice the language there. He is speaking, uh, I've got the ESV translation in front of me here, of brothers, sisters, close family members. This is the level of concern that Christians are supposed to have for each other. Paul isn't writing to the church in Corinth saying, now remember, there are other citizens in Corinth who your actions, who your attitudes might affect in a positive or a negative way. It's more than just being fellow citizens. It's more than just being members of the same church. He says that these are brothers, brothers who Christ died for. 
That's verse 11. By your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed if you exercise a right in the wrong way. The brother for whom Christ died. Next week, God willing, Jimmy Hurd is going to be opening up chapter 10 where he thinks more broadly speaking, not just how our actions are perceived by Christians, but everybody who's watching. Again, this is something that we probably don't resonate with straight away. That we're supposed to have relationships, we're supposed to have care and concern for one another as much as we would in healthy relationships with brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters. So it's not, you can see, just about what we eat. It's about how we love one another, how we treat one another. And sometimes that means foregoing something we think is right or something we are allowed to for the sake of another. We've got the right, okay, this is just like a a random illustration, but it's appropriate today. We've got the right to touch our faces. Ah, yeah, I've done it. I'm going to have to wash my hands before I go near any of you. But what does love tell us to do? The love tells us not to touch our faces, to wash our hands, to not shake hands with people, to not expect certain contact and proximity and all these sorts of things. And in this kind of environment, in this situation, we think, yeah, that's sensible. I know I'm allowed to go and do this. I'm allowed to do that. But for the sake of loving and caring those people around me, I'm going to forego those rights for a week, a month, however long it's going to end up lasting. Paul is saying, as said it 2,000 years ago, practically the same thing. That is how we should view all of our lives and our interactions with our brothers and sisters. That yes, there are certain things that you are allowed to do, and hopefully you will be leading younger brothers and sisters into the truth in that area, but we should be willing to give up those rights for a time for the benefit of those we love. Chapter 9 proves that he's not just speaking about food. If you were reading through 1 Corinthians, I hope you might have done that already, but chapters 8, chapters 9, chapters 10, um, meat and idols and things like that appear in chapter 8, and then Paul speaks about something completely different in chapter 9, and then he's back on ish, meat and idols and things like that in chapter 10. So you might think that chapter uh, chapter 9 is just Paul really turning in the other direction, forgetting where he's going, and then getting back to the issue at hand. But having spoken now, as we have this morning, about thinking through rights and what we're allowed to do, how knowledge is one thing, but love is something greater and should be used for the benefit of others. Let's read the majority of chapter 9 together, and just see how Paul is using another example to help them to see that this is how our mindset should always be. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? He's expecting them to say yes. Am I not an apostle? He's expecting them to say yes again. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife 
as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that's Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? This is what's going on. Paul probably is being accused of not being a great apostle or, or not being like a top dog apostle that should be listened to because he's not commanding a good fee. You can imagine the argument going like, if Paul really was the apostle that he claims to be, he'd be able to charge you top dollar for the information that he's giving out. Okay? And, and look, that's just common sense. Whoever serves as a soldier, do they do it at their own expense? Does someone plant a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? If you really do have this knowledge, Paul, then you've got a right. That just makes sense that you earn your living from it, that you do better than everybody else. That, yes, if that be the case, you take a believing wife along with you on these missionary journeys, and the churches that you plant will pay for you and care for you and make sure that you have what you need. Do I say these things on human authority? Verse 9, doesn't the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. He's saying that this is just like a basic principle. It's doing the work, let it have the wages that it's deserved. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Come on, knowledge people. What is right in this situation? If I bring you the gospel, if I teach you what is true, if you write to me asking for me to weigh in and clarify things, shouldn't you be looking after me? If others are coming and taking gain financially from you, shouldn't we... Barnabas and Paul do so even more. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle or stumbling block in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offering in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel? Verse 15, but I have made no use of these rights. And just in case you want to twist my words, I'm not writing you these things to secure such provision. I'm not telling you this now little backhand saying, oh, remember, you should be looking after me a bit more. <laughs> uh, he's nothing but full of hyperbole. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting, for being able to say, look, I did it. It wasn't for my own gain. I was purely in it for you guys growing in faith. If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. You see, he's gone, right, forget food now and your rights there. and how that, Think about me and my life and how I've been an example to you. 
that I could have claimed so much from you. That was what is right and good and true. There's your knowledge. But because I loved you and because I wanted to be able with such integrity to stand up and not give anyone an opportunity to say that Paul is only in this for what he can get, I didn't take a bean from you. We were looking at this a couple of weeks ago, weren't you? That he worked alongside it and he suffered and he didn't want to be looked after and all of these sorts of things. He is being so, so careful that his rights do not become a stumbling block for anyone weak or strong, saved or not. Why? Because he loves them and he's willing to lay them aside. Those rights, those things that he knows are his. Chapter 10 the end of all of this discussion, this is what he's going to conclude. He's going to conclude, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Because this is what's really important for us this morning, is that Paul isn't just saying, you know what, we've stumbled across this better way of living where we think of other people's needs more than our own, where we at least consider how our actions might impact other people and where they might leave them. He's actually saying, do you know what? No, let's view the world as Christ viewed the world. When I lay my rights aside, I am only trying my best to imitate Christ. And I recommend that you imitate me in doing that. Not just asking the question, what can I do? Can I eat this meat that has been sacrificed in the temple? But actually asking the question, what should I do? What is going to benefit those who I love? I wonder if you've ever considered what rights Jesus had. What rights Jesus had. Jesus had every single right to remain in glory, in heaven, <sighs> in that eternal state that he has been in, loved and loving the Father and the Spirit, receiving the angelic praise, receiving the angelic glory. And he gave up that right, didn't he? Jesus gave up that right. Philippians 2, we, we quote it so often because it's such a powerful passage of Scripture that he did not count equality with God, that thing that he had, as something to be held onto, but he laid it aside. He set it aside for the sake of others, considering the needs of others above our own. That's what Paul is writing about in Philippians chapter 2. I've been playing this week, just not in that kind of cosmic sense of Jesus' rights. He is due the praise and the adoration of every single creature that has ever moved, every single creature that has ever had the breath of life breathed into it. He's due that. I've been considering, well, what rights did Jesus have when he walked this earth? We would say he had the right to a fair trial, didn't he? He certainly didn't get that. He didn't demand that. We would say he had the right to defend himself when he was being falsely accused. He didn't cling on to that right. He had the right to be set free at the end of all that went on in the evening and the morning leading up to Good Friday. But he didn't lay claim to that. He didn't hang on to that right. But because of love, because of love, he forwent those rights for our sake. Knowledge puffs up, 
makes us look big, but love builds up. Very quickly then, how can we love one another? How can we love one another? Well, without getting into lots of specific situations, saying, oh, well, now you need to be very careful about how you handle alcohol or how you handle work. Or I think in our culture, it would be a fair discussion to have how we handle food. We've been speaking in our church, food is a good gift from God. We should be enjoying it. We'll be thanking God for it. Do you know there are young Christians, there are even more mature Christians who still have a very difficult relationship with food where food for them won't just be something to enjoy from God, will be an alternative. Somewhere we go to medicate, somewhere we go to make ourselves feel better when we should be going to Christ. We should be very careful how we approach even things like food in our culture. But I want us more generally just to think, how can we love one another? I think it's two ways. I think that will mean that we need to exercise abstinence. That's what he's saying here. For some of you, you need to not eat that stuff, not because you're not allowed, but because it's going to damage other Christians if you do that. But then I think it has to be implied that we need to go from abstinence to advice. Paul's idea here isn't that some people don't know that these idols are nothing and we leave them remaining that ignorance the rest of their lives. I can't see that that is what he's getting at. He says, no, you're right. And, you know, we know that his desire is that people be led into truth. So I assume that following the abstinence that he's advising, there's going to be input. There's going to be a conversation. There's going to be teaching and training that goes beyond um, just abstaining from things for the sake of others. There's going to be what we don't do, and there's going to be what we do say. That's what love is like. It's not doing, and it is saying. And let's just think what the various scenarios are. Well, option number one for us would be to just not do anything at all. And he says that's, that's bad. Because if you just carry on regardless, then you're not loving each other. There's, I would say, uh, maybe not as bad, but still bad, uh, abstaining from the idle meat in this situation and not chatting about it. Well, really, that's not being entirely loving either, is it? Because those people will carry on and, and they may not ever learn the truth about idols and the power that they hold or they don't hold, their reality or their unreality or not. But there has to be abstinence and advice, not doing, but positively saying. It's a challenge for us. Have you ever foregone something for the sake of someone else? Have you ever thought, you know what, I, I really am allowed to do this, to say this, to participate in this, but I'm not going to for the sake of my younger-in-the-faith brother? Have you ever done that? That's a challenging thought, isn't it? Have you ever been in a situation where more than that, you've given advice? You've sought to teach. You've sought to build someone up in the truth. I tell you what we find far, far more easy is just to carry on living as we know we can, not as we should, as we know we can, and just to throw knowledge over the wall at other people at a distance and just say, I, I assume maybe some people will be struggling with this. Here's the truth. Deal with it. That is not what Paul says to do, is it? He says to enter in. 
I love the fact that he assumes that we must have this depth of relationship that we know where someone will be struggling. Brothers, sisters, you know, the same sort of relationship that, that has the love and the concern will, I think, necessarily help us to know where people are struggling, where people are are lacking in knowledge, where people's consciences are weak, where people's consciences are young and underdeveloped. How will we know? How will we show them the truth? And how will we speak the truth? That's what, those are the questions we need to ask ourselves. And that will look different for all of our relationships and will look different depending on who we have in our church at any one time. It's not going to be today about food sacrificed to idols. But it could be with the new Christian's obsession with work, power and influence in work, or, or money and material things. As I said it could be to do with people's addiction to food and the, the way that we go there and we medicate through it. It could be with people's dependence on alcohol or other substances and, and what have you. It could be any number of things. But this is how we love. By getting close enough to know by acting differently, and by speaking truth into those situations. And I think when you think of those things, that is exactly what you see in Christ. Someone who is willing to come close enough. Someone who was willing to lay certain rights aside, but someone who wanted to speak the truth and lead us into all knowledge. We've got to be willing to be servants even though we've been set free, because that is the Lord, that is the God who we follow. Let's pray, let's sing together. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for this discussion, and I pray that we would go away, and we would read these chapters, and we, and we would think for ourselves, Lord, how we can be setting aside our rights for the sake of those around us. Lord, that just because we know the truth or think we know the whole truth, Lord, that we would prize and treasure love even more. That we would want our abstinence in sort of some certain areas, Lord, to build others up. Lord, I pray as well we wouldn't be scared of speaking into those situations, but we'd want to bring others along to the fullness of knowledge that we think we have in Christ. Oh God, ultimately we thank you that this is following the template, following the pattern, imitating Paul as he was imitating Christ, of one who was willing to give it all up for the sake of those he loved. Willing to get close enough to find out exactly what we needed, to do or to not do what was needed, but to speak and to lead us into that truth. Help us to be a family of believers in this place who not only love you, but love one another in that way, willing to give up for the sake of our family. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amforchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, 
check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.